All right. Well, thank you, everybody. And uh, thank you all for coming out. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for your service, as always. Dennis T., you as brother. Uh, so grateful for you guys. Without you, this wouldn't be going on. So thank you so much. My name is David G. I am an alcoholic. I'm an addict of many sorts. I've been through the work as it's outlined in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I've followed the directions very closely. I've made amends all but one, and I do practice steps 10, 11, 12 as a new way to live today. I'm very grateful to uh, to be doing this study, to get to come out with you guys and, and to share experience, strength, and hope hey, each week. You know, it's just really a great blessing for me. I've had uh, some health issues. I've kind of been under the weather for about eight, nine weeks now, and you know, I've turned a corner and I'm starting to do some better. And Last week, I had a real hard time getting all the way through it. Uh, it may not have seemed that way, but I really struggled to talk for so long. So that may be God's way of saying shut up, right? So <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to thank you for your prayers and all that, um, that you continue to send positive thoughts our way. And we've got a great little recovery community of a whole lot of people, men and women, who have done this work. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of that. So. We've been looking at the insanity that precedes the first drink, the first drug, the first acting out, whether your problem is eating, no matter what it may be. When I do that, it's basically because I have believed the lie that this time it will be different or I can do it and I won't have as many consequences, whatever, whatever the case may be. We've been looking at that all the way through here. We've looked at two of four examples. We've looked at the man of 30. We've looked at Jim. And Jim was uh, quite the drunk. He was a low-bottom drunk. So it was very easy for Jim to see his insanity because he had lost everything that in his life. He had lost his family. He lost his the car dealership that he owned. I mean, he ended up getting drunk on a resentment. And he believed the lie one more time that he could drink on a full stomach if only he mixed that whiskey with milk. And it's continuing to show us the insanity over and over and over that our mind, how self sets us up to believe the lie. And we're going to look at a couple of more examples here in this chapter in particular. But the one thing that I need always remember, always, is it doesn't matter if I'm a low bottom drunk. It doesn't matter if I'm a high bottom drunk. If I'm a low bottomatic or a high bottomatic, I drink and I act out for the same reason. I believe the lie. And that's insanity. And so the book is very clear on these directions once we look at it pretty in depth the way that we're doing tonight. So we're going to drop to the bottom paragraph on page 37 of the book. And we're going to take a look at the jaywalker. Now, whenever I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous and read this, I thought, well, that's stupid. You know what I mean? Who really cares anything about that? But when I stopped and began to read it a little more closely, I start to see how this really relates to me. And these are the same things that I'm doing, is that he's doing. So it says our behavior. And I think those are the key words right there. It's my behavior that is set up by thought, which is insane. I take action based on that. And my reality is whatever it is, whether I'm acting out, whether I'm drinking, whatever I'm doing, my reality is that might work for a minute, but it's not going to work very long. So my behavior is absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink, 
or acting out, whatever it may be, as that of an individual with a passion. And I think that would be the key word for jaywalking. Now, I don't have a passion for jaywalking like this man. I can't relate to him at all. But I have many passions for things that aren't very good for me and healthy in my life, or I did before going through this work. And I can tell you every time I've done that, the same thing that happens to this man is the same thing that happens to me. It says he gets a thrill, uh, there's a key word, out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. How many of us have done that with our alcoholism? It's kind of a thrill at first. It's a lot of fun to do some of the stuff that we do. It says he enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. I can remember a lot of people warning me about my behavior. I can remember a lot of people talking to me about what he would call skipping in front of a fast-moving vehicle. Now, when you're pretty young and in this illness, that really doesn't seem to affect us as much as it does as we get older. And we're going to see what happens while this man is young versus when he gets older with the things that he's doing. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he's slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him if he were normal. And I think that's the key for most of us. If we were normal, obviously, we would cut that out. I once heard a man say in AA, I don't think there's anything abnormal about a higher power running our life. So I'm not so damn sure that we're not the normal ones. Everybody else is abnormal. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I just know that whenever I'm acting out on insane thoughts and, and my behavior is resulting in that, that's anything but normal. It says presently he's hit again, and this time he has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. Well, he's going to do right here what most of us do, and in the fellowship and in the program, we call this our national anthem. I've decided to stop the jaywalking for good. How many of us have ever said that over and over and over? I'll quit. I'm done. No more. I promise. And mean it. And mean it with all my heart. So he has decided. So he's made a decision based on self. And this is going to put him in a position to be hurt. The book's going to talk about this more and more as we go on. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. Well, on through the year, the conduct continues. See, that's the key. It's the conduct that continues, accompanied by continual promises. That's all coming from the self within my mind. Or to be careful and keep off the streets altogether. I mean, yeah, he's a, he's a little older now. Things aren't looking so good for him. He's pretty beat up now. Finally, he can no longer work. That's not a very good idea. His wife gets a divorce. I've been through that two different times in my life. He's held up to ridicule. He's in pretty bad shape now. The disease, if we look at it in our own life, has begun to grow to a point to where some of these things are happening for us. We can no longer work. We get a divorce. We're held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea, keywords here, out of his head because obviously that's where it's at. He shuts himself up in asylums or AA meetings or SA meetings or treatment centers or whatever you may want to call it, hoping to mend his way. But the day comes when he races out in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? He absolutely would be crazy. So there's really only one question. Can I or can I not see the truth about alcohol, lust, sexual acting out, eating, 
whatever the illness may be, can I see the truth about that or can I not? And if that answer is yes, then I'm sane. If that answer is no, then I'm insane, the same as this man is. And I can look back on my experience and give illustration after illustration and illustration of the insanity. It didn't only happen to me while I was drinking and acting out. It happened to me way before I started. A lot of times I'll work with a man. He'll come in. He still has his family. He still has a home. He still has a vehicle. He still has a job. He says, man, don't tell me I'm crazy. I am not insane. We're not talking about that kind of insanity here. We're talking about a much deeper form of insanity that leads us to the behaviors. So the book says you may think our illustration is ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer, I think there should be a question mark there. I should have to answer that for myself. We who have been through the ringer, is that me? We have to admit if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. And when I looked at it in that light, I was absolutely able to see the insanity. Now, however intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol, lust, sexual acting out, whatever it may be, has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? And I remember my sponsor having me to write yes or no in that little space and reflect on that for some time before we moved on. Some of you are thinking he had me to write danger above that. Anytime I get to think with the untreated mind, then self is all over this. So what I see here is that some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. Now I come in here, beat all to hell. And I come to a meeting with you guys and you sit here and tell me the truth and you show me a way out. I say, yeah, yeah, that's true. But what you tell me really doesn't fully apply. That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? To think something like that after all I've been through. But that's exactly what I do. Now, we admit that we have some of the symptoms, but we've not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well. That's the biggest lie of self right there. I need understanding. I need knowledge. I need you to break it down and explain it to me over and over and over until I get it. I got to go through all of these scenarios in my head until I'm able to finally come to the conclusion that you're full of crap and I don't need to be listening to you anyway. So it's like it's just the most insane thing. But this is what self tells me. I understand myself so well now that what you have told me, such things cannot happen to me again. That's insane. And I believe that. In 2017, I came to SA for the first time. And a man sat across very lovingly, took me out to lunch, told me the truth, showed me exactly what was wrong with me, talked to me about the program. And I looked at him and said, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for 24 years. <laughs> there's nothing you can tell me about the program that I don't already know. How insane is that for me to sit there and tell that man that? And he's sitting there with a happy life and I'm dying over here from us. And uh, I left there thinking that very same thing that day. After what he has told me, such things won't happen to me again. I went on a relapse less than a month later and I stayed out there almost three years at that time. It was unreal. We, the book says we've not lost everything in life. And I, I pretty well did through drinking or whatever it is, and we certainly do not intend to, thanks for the information. Now, that may be true of a certain non-alcoholic who, though drinking foolishly, that's because of the mental obsession. Heavily, that's because of the physical allergy. At the present time, they're able to stop or moderate because their brains, that's the mental, and their bodies, that's the physical, have not been damaged as ours were. Not as ours are, but as ours were. That's a promise. 
But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, and I need to pay close attention anytime I see squiggly writing inside this book is what I was taught. I will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge with a small s. In my lineage, we're not really concerned with self-knowledge as much as we are knowledge of self, because this is what's killing us. Sober. This is what drives us back out the door. The insanity over and over and over. This is a point we wish to emphasize and reemphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers. It has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. How would a revelation like that come to me? Well, self is going to make sure it does. <laughs> and it does. And so we're going to take another illustration and we're going to take a look at a man named Fred. Now, Fred was a high bottom drunk. Jim, on the day Jim got drunk, he was madder in hell. On the day Fred got drunk, he was on top of the world, not a cloud on the horizon. Fred was in pretty good shape. Anybody that's read the big book for any length of time knows these two stories. Jim was a low bottom. Fred's what's considered a high bottom. But it doesn't matter if you're a high bottom or if you're a low bottom. Anytime you believe the lie, that's insanity. And if insanity will get you drunk or, or cause you to act out no matter what position in life you're in. They told me that this illness has no buddies. <laughs> and I come to believe that is true. So Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home and he's happily married. He's the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a keyword here, personality, that he makes friends with everyone. Let's watch how this personality is going to take a shift on him. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearance, he is stable. That should be a question mark. Because inside of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for many years and behind many podiums and from a lot of these book studies, my appearance seemed to be very stable, well-balanced. I could talk the talk. I could do all this. But I was living another life on side that nobody knew about. And I couldn't get away from that life. And the more I tried to control and manage it, the worse it got. So I'm kind of like Fred. To all appearance, I am stable. I'm a well-balanced individual. Yet I'm alcoholic, lustaholic, whatever it is. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of the jitters. It was his first experience of this kind. He was much ashamed of it. Notice how ego and self always bring shame to us. And that's what's happening to Fred. So far from admitting that he was an alcoholic, that's step one. He told himself. That's self. He told himself that he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. I work with a lot of nerve resters inside of the fellowship. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For days, he was depressed about his condition. Notice how shame came first. Now look at how depression shows up. Anybody else experience that other than Fred and me? He made up his mind to quit drinking, acting out, or whatever it may be altogether. That's a dangerous decision to be made by someone like us. It never occurred to him that perhaps he couldn't do so. In spite of his character standard, which means little in this disease, Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic as step one, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem, step two. 
if you don't need step one, obviously you're not going to need step two. We told him what we knew of alcoholism. That's the first step. They told him about the allergy to the body, the obsession to the mind, and how it sends us in that downward spiral. Fred was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms, conceded being the key word. But he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. Self will try to manage our own life, even in the worst of times. He was positive that his humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober for the rest of his life. That's a very dangerous place to be. Very dangerous place in my mind. Self-knowledge would fix it. Now, we heard no more from Fred for a while, and one day we were told he back in the hospital, and this time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. Started with shame, ended up in depression, now it's anxiety. Yeah, all this stuff just starts flooding in on us. So the story he stole is most instructive. And I'm kind of like Fred in those days. I want to tell a story more than I do really get to the bottom of the problem. What we're going to do here, is we're going to take a look through Fred's story and put it into the first person. And we're going to look at how self sets us up with the thoughts that will cause us to take actions based on it. And our reality is probably going to be the same as Fred's or worse for some of us. And we're going to look at that. But I want to come tell you a story first. I, you know, I'm like Fred. So my lineage we're not interested in stories there's only one story we're interested in and that's the story of how many thousand men and women have recovered from alcoholism that's the only story we're interested in here was a chap absolutely convinced keyword absolutely convinced that's how self is that he had to stop drinking he had no excuse for drinking he exhibited splendid judgment and keyword here determination and all his other concerns Yet he was flat on his back, nevertheless. Self will convince me that I don't need what you people have to offer me, even when I'm flat on my back. Let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellas said about alcoholism. Let's watch how self shows up. And I frankly, key words here, did not believe. We've said all along, the self is the set of beliefs concepts, ideas, prejudice, all these different things that come into the mind, they deter us, and they get us to act on something that isn't true. He's talked about delusion. He's talked about illusion. He's talked about all these things. So let's see how this happens for Fred. I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. And if I don't believe that's possible, I'll drink again. If I don't believe it's possible, never forget the fact that I've been flat on my back and I'm in the hospital and all this stuff. And if I don't believe that, then I've believed the lie. I've believed insanity. So the only thing, obviously, that needs to change here is my beliefs, my thoughts, my ideas, and my concepts. And once that changes, I no longer act the same anymore, and I begin to recover from a hopeless state of mind. Fred said, I frankly did not believe it'd be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your key words here. Ideas about the subtle insanity, which precedes the first drink. And I think that's it. It's the subtle insanity that precedes that first drink or drug or acting out or whatever it is. I was confident. Key words right here. <laughs> wow. 
that it could not happen to me after what I had, keyword right here, learned, I, keyword right here, reason, look how self is just flooding in on, on top of me. I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows. I've been usually successful in licking my other personal problems and that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. Keywords. I felt. Notice how it comes through our feelings. Notice how it comes through our reasoning. Notice how it comes through our ideas and our beliefs and our conceptions. Over and over and over. Fred's about to take action based on these thoughts and the reality is not going to be very good. Same as ours. I felt I had every right to be, keyword, self-confident with a little s. It'd only be an a, a matter of exercising my willpower, keywords, and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, self, running the show, Fred goes about his business, and all goes well for a time. Anybody experience that after a relapse? It seems like we come in, kind of pull ourselves together, and all goes well for a little while. We really don't have any problem refusing drinks, like he says. And I begin to wonder if I've not been making too hard work of a simple matter. I remember saying that to my sponsor in 2017 after I went on that long relapse, 2019, excuse me, that long relapse. And I said, maybe I've been making too hard work out of a simple matter. He said, boy, <laughs> I'm getting real tired of you real quick. He said, uh, mm -hmm. you just keep thinking that. And I promise you what happened to you then is going to be a sweet memory to what happens to you next. He was right. I'm like Fred. Fred goes about it a different way. One day, Fred says I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence. I had a torn bicep in my right arm. My days and nights got mixed up. I was taking the pain medication as described. I gave it to my sponsor. I was being accountable with my wife. One night, I'm sitting in the room over there about six, 700 feet over there, wherever it's at, in that other part of the home, I hear the dog barking across the street. I look outside. There's a guy out with, with a flashlight by my truck out over by the alley in my corner lot. And come to find out he was looking for a dog, but I didn't know that at the time. So I went outside. I got big floodlights all over the place. I turned it on and light up the whole neighborhood, you know, and he takes off because he don't know what's going on my mind, he's running away from me. So I tell him, you know, come back. I want to, I want to fight with you. And, and then I remember, I look down, I've got a cast on my right arm. I come inside of the house and get a pistol and go back in the backyard. And we start talking and he's screaming and I'm hollering at him to come out into the light so I can see him. I just want to take a look and see what he looks like. And thank God that man did not step out that night because he had, I, I know I would have shot him dead. I would have under that illusion. And he kept arguing with me and talking, and there was trees between us, and I just pointed that pistol in the direction of that voice and started shooting. Just lit that house up. I'm a felon. <laughs> I get caught with a pistol, let alone shooting it. There's a long time going to be paid over that. And so the insanity, and the reason I tell that story is because it's the same thing that Fred does here, only he does it in a different way. I mean, his isn't quite as extreme as that. But he goes to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. He says, I've been out of town before during this particular dry spell. So there was nothing, you know, there's no sobriety there at all. There's nothing new about that. Physically, keywords right here, I felt fine. Anytime that feeling is on me that I'm fine, and I felt fine that night. I felt pretty good. 
Even after I'd done that, I felt pretty good. How crazy is that? Fred says, neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased. I knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. My sponsor had me to write in this little space that, do I drink and act out because of my feelings? Because a lot of meetings I go to, I hear it's a feelings disease. I hear if I get my feelings in check, that things will. Well, I'm seeing through this book now that I don't have the ability or the power to get my feelings into check. In fact, they check me <laughs> quite often. And whenever it's like that, the same thing that happens to him is what happens to me. Fred's got a perfect day. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I can remember sitting at the bar many times, pretty lady on my lap. Jack Daniels whiskey in front of me. I mean, it was just, it's the end of the perfect day. So I drank whether I feel good or I feel bad. It doesn't matter. He says, I went to the, my hotel and I leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought, keyword, the thought came to mind. Now, where in the hell would a thought like that come from? Just out of the blue. That it'd be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Now it's in the body. It went from a thought to an action. And that's usually what happens to me. After dinner, I, keyword here, decided Fred's making decisions based on self, and it's not working out very well for him, to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me. Keyword, it struck me. How would it strike me like that? Well, it does in my mind. And plus, you know, I mean, alcohol's in the body now, so the allergy is activated. It struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. Isn't that usually how we are? We just have one, right? It's that one. Isn't that what they say in AA? It's not the caboose that kills you. You know, it's the engine. Right? <laughs> so stepped in the bar and had one. He says, I remember having several more that night and plenty the next morning. I have a shadowy recollection. We know where recollection comes from. Of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxi driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. Them boys was on a drunk. <laughs> That's what they were doing. I guarantee it was. I know. I know little of where I went, what I said, and what I did. See, it started with a thought. It became an action. And now we're looking at the reality for Fred. How many times can we look in our life where it started with the thought? I'm headed to the store. And I don't know, in, in AA, we call it a blackout. And that's the same thing that we call it in SA. Because I promise you, my mind don't think about it again. I pull into a massage parlor. I pull into somewhere like that. There may be a quick thought of, oh, hell, I shouldn't be here. But that is very quickly overrode by the next thought. Sorry, right. won't take very long. And then there I am again with the unbearable mental and physical suffering. One more time, over and over and over. And my poor wife, my poor wife. God almighty. As soon as I regain my ability, keywords here, to think. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I regain my ability to do that, I'm probably going to suffer from shame, remorse, guilt, and all kinds of depression. Any act on here can relate to this, I'm sure. I carefully went over the evening in Washington. Now I want to look at what happened. I'm not seeing it too well before it happens, but now that it's over and I've regained a little bit of ability to think here, I'm going to carefully go over that evening in Washington. The only thing that I don't know is the same thing that I carefully go over the evening with now 
the same thing that I went through the evening with that took me down there. I don't have any, the ability to think straight. And isn't that what it said back over there on page 37 when we were talking? How could such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? And it's the same thing right here. This time I had not thought, keyword. I hadn't even thought of the consequences at all. Remember Jim. He knew he was going to lose his family. He knew all this stuff. He knew it. He knew it. He knew it. He drank again. I don't think of the consequences whenever self is on me and it's got me blinded in the illness. And I come home and my wife says, why did you do that? You knew. You knew not to go there. You knew. And I did know. She's right. I did. But I guarantee you there was something greater than me inside of my mind that drove me there. And I, I was going there one way or the other. And I really didn't have any control over that. One of the things my wife has always told me, because I say this quite often, and I'll definitely be saying a lot when we get to step three, I'm accountable for every action that I've ever taken, good or bad. I'm accountable for that because I was there. But I promise you there was something greater than me directing my thoughts to send me there. And I had no control over that. I just didn't. I was powerless over that kind of thinking. The same way Fred has been, the same way Jim has been, same way the Jaywalker's been, the man of 30, everyone I'm powerless over these thoughts. We take actions based on a thought, and here's our reality. This time, Fred says, I didn't even think about the consequences at all. I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. Now I remember. Shit. He says, now I remember. That's how I am. Now I remember what you told me, sweetheart. I remember. My God, I remember that, just like you said it a minute ago. But if you look at where he says, not only had I been off guard, if you look almost directly across the page, the same sentence all the way across to the other side, his thought process at that time was only a matter of exercising his willpower and keeping on guard. So I don't care how much we keep on guard with this. I don't have the power at certain times for that to jump up and slap me around. And it does and did and will, and it's unbelievable. Fred says, I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remember what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, a lustaholic mind, the time and place will come, and I will drink or act out again. I will. I don't care. I don't have the power not to stop that without God, without a power greater than myself. I just do not. That's why the very next step is going to lead into step two. Without that power greater than self, this thing will rule me for the rest of my life. It just will. They said that though I did raise the defense, we know where a defense comes from. That comes from self. Well, that'll one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink or ending up at the massage parlor on the internet or whatever it is we do. We'll just, that did happen and more for what I keyword here had learned. We know where that comes from of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. That's insane that I know all this from going to meetings and that don't even occur to me in the moment. It just don't. I go do what I do. He said, I knew from that moment on, I had an alcoholic mind. There's a little bit of sanity starting to return. I knew now I know. Willpower and self-knowledge, small s, will not help me in those strange mental blank spots because they will come. The car will go left and go to the massage parlor. The hand will hit the internet and click on. It will because I'll be in a blank spot and I will have no defense against that. I just won't.
And going to meetings is a wonderful thing, but that's not enough for me. I've got to have a power greater than myself to overcome this insanity. That's why it says we come to believe something greater than us can restore us to sanity because I'm insane. I believe the lie over and over and over and over, and I fall out every single time. And this went on endlessly for about 18, 19 years of my life inside of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm very well aware of what this can and will do. He said, I'd never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. A little more sanity is beginning to show up. Two members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like. So I don't like it when you guys grin. You know, you, you got an answer. You want to talk about it. I don't like that. You guys kind of make me mad on that deal, you know. And they asked me if I thought myself alcoholic. And I think this is the key, though. Working with any newcomer. I think this is a question that we should ask them every single time. And this was the question was asked to me at 24 years and going back through this book. If I really, if I were really licked this time, well, of course, my mind wants to say, yes, absolutely. <laughs> of course, I'm licked this time. I was the last time the time before. He said, I had to concede to both propositions. We know when we concede to anything where that comes from. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I had exhibited in Washington was a hopeless condition. That's the first step in its entirety right there. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. I think this is another thing that we need to meditate on after this chapter, or at least I was told to do this. But this process will snuff out the last flicker of conviction that I can do the job by myself. And if I'm not convinced of that, if I don't really need you anymore, and I don't really need to read this book every week with somebody, and I don't really need to do this, and I don't need to do this, then the chances are that I'm not very convinced of that. So I like how he uses the word conviction. That's a very strong word. Today I have that conviction, I guarantee you. That's step one. Then they outline the spiritual answer. That's step two. We're immediately going to do that quickly after we look at step one. And the program of action. That's steps three through 12 as outlined in this book. And look at the great promise. A hundred of them had followed it successfully. What a promise. A hundred of them. My God. Though I'd been a nominal church man, and that seems to be very relevant here at that's not good enough for me to have a spiritual experience to overcome the illness of addiction. Because if it was, I'll guarantee you there's many people on here that would have recovered a long time ago. There's a lot of good, good going church going people that, that die from this, not knowing. He says their proposals were not too intellectually hard to swallow, but the program of action, steps three through 12. He says, man, that's pretty drastic. <laughs> and those that go through this work with me tell me the same thing. It's pretty drastic. But here's the key to it right here. I'm going to have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. And I'm going to have to have a power greater than me and a guide that can walk me through this process in the big book in order to do that. Because when we get to page 47, we're going to look at an exercise that will enable us to do this. 
And if we do take that exercise and we're honest and we're prayerful about it, a lot of those lifelong conceptions will begin to slip away the same way they did for Fred. Notice what he says. That was not easy. I just did one with a dear friend not too long ago. Beautiful set of, uh, of uh, spiritual terms. And I begin to really see as that as that experience went on and on, a lot of those conceptions begin to leave. A lot of them still hang around, but a lot of them leave, and the rest of them go. But he said, the moment that I made up my mind, there's the key word. Now I'm making my mind up in a different way because I've had a little bit of clarity. I've experienced the first step. I don't want any more of that. So I'm going to make my mind up to do something different, and we're going to call it to go through the process. And you hear us say that over and over and over and over here. There is a process through this book with a sponsor or a guide, whatever you want to term it, doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter how long you've been sober. It doesn't matter how long you've been around. It doesn't really matter if you've done it before. There is a process here. And I've went through it many times. And, and the outcome is always the same as Fred's right here. I have the curious keyword here, feeling. Now my feelings have begun to change. That my alcoholic, lustaholic, sexaholic condition was relieved, and in fact, as it has proved to be. By God's grace, next week, if nothing happens between now and then, I will have been sober in that realm of life for three years. That's, that's big for a guy like me who suffered from that for 25 years. <laughs> it's like, my God. Have I walking on water? Have I not, you know, had thoughts here? Absolutely, I have. I'm a human being. But I'm not taking action based on those anymore, and that's only because of this process. I love this right here. <clears throat> quite as important was the discovery. Wow, I discovered something here, and it was quite important. It was very important to me. That spiritual principles would solve all of my problems not just the lust problem, not just the drink or the drug problem, not just my codependency problem, my eating problem, all my problems. Because as we dig in depth into the emotional stuff that we're going to look at as we get on through the rest of the steps up into here, we're going to really begin to see how these emotions have been embedded into us for a long, long time. Well, Fred says, I've since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. I don't have to guess about that. I know. He says, my old man of life was by no means a bad one. I don't know about him, but for me, that was absolutely not the truth. I don't agree with that statement in the book. But I like how he says, but, and that, that changes the whole paragraph, you know, the whole wording. I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. We don't have any choice in that. We can't go back now. There's no way. We just can't. And won't. And that's the beauty of it. An old timer in AA said it like this. Once you pull your head out of your backside, of course, he said it much different than that. He said, you can never put it back in there no matter how hard you try. And I thought he was a liar. And in fact, I told him he was a liar. He wasn't a liar. The whole time that I was in active addiction, I knew. And that is it. That's living hell on earth. To know that you're doing what you're doing and you can't stop it. You can I just, I can't go back to that, <laughs> even if I could. I just can't. And it's, so Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had only felt, keyword. he had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Wow. If that's the first nip of the ringer, I'd hate to see the last one in what was described right there. 
Notice how it says most, not all. Most alcoholics or sexaholics or food addicts or whatever it may be have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. And I was asked to write this in that little space right there. My sponsor, he was bad about this going through this process. Do I have the power? Can I solve my problems? And I was asked to meditate on that for some time because obviously I have thought that I did have for a long time. It always turned out to be a lie. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusion. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about the general hopelessness of the, of the average alcoholic's plight, that's step one, <clears throat> as in my opinion, correct. As to two of you men whose stories I've heard, there's no doubt that you were 100% hopeless. That's step one. 100 percent hopeless apart from divine help that's step two so apart from divine help i will continue a hopeless way of life and it will be based on thoughts ideas concepts beliefs and prejudice and it will just reinforce and get stronger as i go had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital i would not have taken you had i been able to avoid it people like you are too heartbreaking I'll guarantee you ask any wife on here of some of us addicts how heartbreaking some of us are. And I guarantee there's some sad stories to be told. I know there is in this home for sure. But there's also a lot of joy now. It's no longer a lot of heartbreak. So there, there is hope. There is, there is a solution here. But if I don't take it, then I'm going to be trapped in this for God only knows how long. I remember a man said, you pick the day you go out and relapse. God picks the day you get to come back. And I may have picked the day that I went out, but I sure as hell didn't get to pick the day I come back. That was almost 20 years later. And so, yeah, I believe what he told me now. He said, though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours for most. Keyword, not all. I see a lot of resters, nerve resters and Alcoholics Anonymous. I see a lot of people that are there talking about their day and their dog. And I think that's a wonderful conversation piece for another time, but we're talking about something that's going to kill my ass here dead. I ain't got time to talk about the dog at the meeting. I want to talk about what do I got to do to get out of this insanity to save my life. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. That's a hell of a statement. <laughs> that is quite the statement. So he says once more, it's like this started on page 23. When he said the main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind, not the body. And at, all the way through there, he has given us example after example after example of how the hopelessness hits the mind. We take a, actions based on, on self. That puts us in a position to be hurt over and over. He's told us about that. I don't know how many times through here. And we get to here and he says, okay, I'm going to tell you once more that the alcoholic, at, and I think this is so key right here. I know it is for me. At certain times, not all the time, I can't see this all the time, but at certain times, I'm going to have no effective mental defense against that first drink, drug, acting out, whatever it may be. I'm not going to have that. Without a higher power, I will not have that. I can come to meetings and I can do 90 and 90 and I can get a sponsor and I can read the book and I can do those things and hell, I fall out drunk. That's been my experience over and over and over through the years. How in God's name do you stop that? Well, he's about to tell us right here. 
except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being, and that includes the fellowship of any program or any fellowship that we're in. Wonderful people. I love them with all my heart. I still do to this day, but they can't save me from this. There's no way. They can help me. They can encourage me. They can guide me along. But no human being can provide this defense. This defense must. And he had me underline that about six, seven, eight times. Must come from a higher power. There is no other, there is no other defense. That is the one. So we've seen the insanity. If we're powerless, then obviously power has to be the answer. If insanity, which is self, that is made up of thoughts, ideas, concepts, beliefs, and prejudice, is what continues to guide and rule our life over and over and over and over. Something has to be able to stop that. It's told me that no human being is going to be able to do it. It's told me going to church ain't going to be able to do it. Going to meetings ain't going to be able to do it. There's only one thing that can do that, and that's a higher power. So there's where we're going to be when we come back here next week, for sure. We're going to be taking a look at what most of us, when we first get here, don't even really want to mess with too much. But what we come to find out, most of it's been based on a set of beliefs. Wow. Man. That shouldn't be too strange <laughs> compared to everything else has been a set of beliefs. And once those beliefs change, God doesn't change. My idea of God changes. And when that changes, I change and I begin to recover. So he had me to write this at the very bottom of my page, quiet time. And this was my prayer. God, please reveal to me if this process has snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I can do the job myself. And I want to sit with that for a little while. Not a long time, <laughs> because if I do, some kind of thought will roll in there and it's, it's liable to take me away. But I need to be absolutely convinced of this beyond a shadow of a doubt that no human being can provide that defense for me. That defense is going to have to come from a higher power. And my problem was it wasn't that I didn't believe in God, but the way they presented him to me, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't accept it. So, therefore, I thought I couldn't accept God. I thought a guy like me and the things that I'd done to men, hell, I'd killed a man in my life. How could God help me? How could he help me? He did. And I tell you, it's been a good life. It's been a real good life. There's been some craziness. Don't get me wrong. But it's been a good life. I've not picked up alcohol and drugs since August 8th, 1994. That's been 28 years plus now. That's a wonderful thing in my life, I promise you. Sexual acting out, lust, and the crazy, and the darkness, that, that will take you three years in a week from now. I'm very grateful. But I tell you this, all of that couldn't have happened without somebody guiding me through this book that led me. I heard about step one in the fellowship for a long, long time. And I was like, okay, well, you just met your powerless and you go home. I had no idea what I was powerless over until this. It's very clear to me in the way that we've studied it here in the last few, several weeks, however long it's been now. This is absolutely my problem. I suffer from a set of beliefs that are made up by the self that will encourage me and enable me to take action. And it'll lead to my destruction over and over and over and over. There's no way out except through this higher power. So that's what we'll be looking at next week. 
the entire chapter will be devoted to step two and we will be looking at the agnostic and uh, a lot of people think well i don't need to read that i'm really not agnostic i think you'll be surprised to find out what the word means agnostic <laughs> that word broken down and looked it back to its original roots has quite a meaning that applies to everybody so until then, I want to thank you guys for letting me come out, share experience, strength, and hope. And I made it all the way through without a struggle tonight. So thank you guys. I appreciate it. This concludes David's share on tonight's chapter, but we encourage you to keep listening as he answers questions from the audience and shares additional experience, strength, and hope. My second question was, I've, I've heard, you know, the moderate, the hard, the hopeless type of addict, but I've never really heard the high versus low bottom. Can you explain a little bit more about what the difference is again? Yeah, I think that the high bottom is kind of like Fred was. He had a good job. He had a good home. He had, you know, kids of college. He had all of these wonderful things going for him. Fred would be a high bottom drunk. If I looked at the addict in that situation, I look at a lot of people that come in, they have a great job, they have a great education, they have a whole lot of things. They're really smart. They have great intellect. They're pretty much high bottom. And then I look at a guy like myself that comes in who has been to prison, who has been to this, all of this stuff, and the craziness and insanity, that's what I would consider a low bottom. But it doesn't matter whether you're low or high. We both act out for the very same reason we believe the lie and that's the insanity so that would be my definition of low and high in, as far as an addict thank you um david you have a string of words that are descriptors for self and i want to be sure i got all of them you said uh the uh, something like, I believe this is what you said, the self is made up of our thoughts, ideas, concepts, beliefs, and prejudices. Did I miss anything there? Attitudes. 